You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. A review in this month's JNNP looks at neuromyelitis optica and its spectrum disorders. Annie Jacob, who's consultant neurologist at the Walton Centre for Neurology and Neurosurgery, that's in Liverpool, and who's also the national lead for NMO services in the UK, is the lead author on the paper and joins me on the line to discuss it. So good morning, Annie. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, morning, Harriet. Thank you very much for having me. So first things first, what is neuromyelitis optica? Well, um, neuromyelitis optica is an idiopathic uh, inflammatory demyelinating disorder that affects the central nervous system. And it predominantly seems to affect the optic nerves and the spinal cord. It's been around for a long time, probably first described um, as an entity in the mid to late uh, 1800s. Not a lot was definitively known about it except for this predilection for optic nerves and spinal cord, hence the term neuromyelitis. But in the last 10 years, there has been an explosion of uh, knowledge on the condition. That has um, led to changes in uh, diagnosis, treatment. And it has been confused with MS in the past, is that right? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I can, I can see why, because MS, in its typical form, uh, one of the commonest presentations is optic neuritis and myelitis, and NMO has pretty much the same thing. So without any other major differentiating factors, NMO was considered a severe form of MS. Mm. And, and tell me a bit about the spectrum disorders. How do they fit in? Yeah, so clearly one has to get optic neuritis or myelitis um, to begin off with. Some patients get both at the same time. But if you have only one, one of the either, uh, and then there is going to be a time till the next one happens. So we were, we are in limbo as to what to call those. But now, if we, we know that there is an antibody associated with this condition, it's called the anti aquaporin for antibody. The presence of the antibody tells us that this particular patient who's had only one episode of optic neuritis uh, or myelitis is likely to go on to get other episodes. But also, it's possible that the same patient has had multiple episodes of optic neuritis, or for that matter, myelitis, and uh, they have not yet got the other correlate, the myelitis optic neuritis. We don't have to wait for the other event to happen. We can call this NMO spectrum at this point. There are also other presentations of NMO, including brain stem syndromes, nausea, vomiting, hiccups, uh, that are partial forms. They also fall into this NMO spectrum category. I think what defines NMO spectrum at present is largely the presence of the anti-aquaporin-4 uh, antibody. So if you have a neurological syndrome with the acuporin for antibody done in the right centers with the right test, one would call it uh, as an NMO spectrum disorder. Obviously, we, we have to be cautious uh, when we depend entirely on an antibody to define a disease. So I'm sure there is going to be some debate and some modification of the criteria uh, in the coming months. Right. Okay. But that, that's the key at the moment. Yes. Yeah. And um, how much do we know about the, the prevalence of NMO and, and its spectrum disorders? And are there any populations which tend to have particularly high rates? Yeah, I mean, it is a worldwide condition. And um, it was thought to be more common in Japan and uh, in the African-Caribbean population. But we see it uh, uh, quite a lot in, uh, in, amongst Caucasians too. 
there are studies. The older ones have report a prevalence of about uh, 2.5 per 100,000. That's in Martinique and, and French West Indies. There was a study in Cuba saying 0.1. The recent Danish study with a predominant Caucasian population says 4.4 per 100,000. So it's not that common, but it is not very rare. And is there any link to to sex or age or or family? Most of the patients, up to about 80%, are are women. That is probably a general theme in most autoimmune disorders. As regards to uh, families, well, a small proportion, about uh, less than uh, 2-3%, uh, have a family history of an affected relative. No pathogenic mutation, I think, has been uh, recognized. There have been studies, there's an excellent study from, from the Mayo Clinic. They found only one uncommon SNP uh, in, in the various, in the large population they studied. I think we are really, there's natural associations as well, but nothing that um, has a predictive or a diagnostic value at present. The vast majority seem to be sporadic. Sure, okay. And how might this present in the, in the clinic? How would clinicians initially see this? The most common presentation would be a severe optic neuritis or a transverse myelitis. Transverse myelitis has many causes, um, viral myelitis and MS-related myelitis. But if the myelitis is, we call it longitudinally extensive, then with our current understanding, NMO has to be a consideration. It should um, alert the physician to send off the antibody testing. Optic neuritis um, also can be, it's a very common condition again. Neurologists now are aware of the possibility and they uh, do send off the antibodies. But I think other specialities may not be doing as much. We are trying to educate people more. It's only going to be a small proportion of the optic neuritis who is going to have the antibody. But long transverse myelitis, I think the proportion is going to be higher. There are, there are varying reports. Particularly if you have relapsing longitudinally extensive myelitis, we're talking about, uh, I think, 40% of patients or 50% of patients going on to get the full form of NMO over time. And, and what other investigations should clinicians be considering, obviously, after they've, they've sent off for that antibody test? Most patients, uh, if they present with, uh, with optic neuritis or myelitis, will get an um, MRI of the brain, and transverse myelitis uh, would have an MRI of the spinal cord and the brain. We should follow it up with a spinal fluid study in which CSF oligoclonal bands um, are usually absent, about 80%. We did not find it. But it is uh, present in most cases of uh, more than 90% cases of MS, so it's a distinguishing feature there. And what about MRI? What what would you expect to see here? If somebody comes with a, a myelitis, the spinal cord MRI would usually reveal a long area of inflammation. Long is an arbitrary definition, but more than three vertebral segments uh, is what has been conventionally defined. Often you'd find swelling. Um, there can be, sometimes the whole cord can be involved, the entire cord can be involved. So this is different from the MS lesion, which is usually small, usually peripheral, and it's a short segment demyelination. If you do an MRI of the brain, in a patient with myelitis who has no brain symptoms, you often find uh, uh, lesions that look different from MS. You, will, you could find periventricular lesions in the brainstem around the aqueduct uh, in the brainstem. There are fluffy lesions that look like ADEM. 
I mean, initially we used to think the MRI of the brain in animal uh, is always normal, but we know now that 60% of patients uh, have an abnormal scan. As time goes on, we realize the differentiating features between MS and NMO on brain MRI are actually reducing. Uh, so all kinds of patterns have been described. But in a classical patient, uh, you would find fluffy lesions, periventricular lesions, and not the typical callosal lesions of MS. Yeah, okay. And other than the um, the AQP4 autoantibody, are there any other antibody findings that um, clinicians should be aware of? There are other antibodies that could be associated with uh, NMO or leading to NMO. This is not yet proven. The recently described MOG antibody in NMO. It's already been described in other, in other conditions like in MS, but uh, in NMO, it was found in a, a group of monophasic patients, that is, uh, people who had an optic neuritis, myelitis, and no further episodes, they were found to have a MOG antibodies. There was discussions recently on an uh, Nacoporin-1 antibody. Again, we are awaiting publication on that. But on an, another theme, there are a variety of autoimmune illnesses that could coexist with NMO, for example, myasthenia, celiac disease, arthritis, lupus, thyroid problems. So it's worthwhile asking the relevant questions when you see a patient with NMO for the first time, uh, looking for these autoimmune disorders and screening appropriately. In fact, I think about uh, 40% of patients with uh, NMO seem to have autoantibodies that may coexist with an autoimmune illness. Right, okay, so it can be quite a complex picture. It can, yes, um, particularly you know, lupus is a condition that uh, was thought to have long myelitis um, but now we know that it's actually two different conditions, NMO and uh, lupus coexisting. Um, and we have to send off the NMO antibody in, in lupus myelitis patients to differentiate whether it's a lupus related myelitis or infected as NMO, which seems to be the case uh, more often. And how much do we understand about the, the pathogenesis and, and pathology of NMO and, and the spectrum disorders at the moment? Do we have a really clear understanding of, of what's going on or is it a bit muddier than that? Surprisingly, uh, I think we know a lot about uh, NMO pathogenesis and pathology compared to what we know about MS. I suspect it's largely because we have been able to identify uh, this, this unique antibody. Let me take, to take you through what happens in, in NMO. For some reason, someone's immune system decides to produce uh, autoantibody, anti-acoporin-4 antibody, and this is in the peripheral system outside the blood-brain barrier. The antibody circulates uh, and can be in circulation for a while before it causes illness. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. Uh, once it's in the vicinity of the neuron, the astrocyte, the antibody binds to the aquaporin-4, which is a water channel, on the foot processes of the astrocyte membrane. The water channel naturally allows water to go in and out of the cell, and uh, binding to this particular water channel leads to inflammation, complement fixation, migration of uh, other cell types like neutrophils, eosinophils. There is an intense inflammation, much more than is seen in typical MS. There are other possible mechanisms there. The, the water transport can be interrupted because of uh, internalization or destruction of the, water, uh, of the aquaporin-4. There can be some glutamate excess. Ultimately, there is severe necrosis, there is severe edema, and uh, this is obviously much more than what one would see in MS. This is the reason for the severity of the attack, and this is also the reason why 
recovery is often poor because so much is necrosed uh, and damaged. The reason for the predilection for optic nerves and spinal cord could be the excess of aquaporin-4 in these areas. And there is also similar excess in the periventricular uh, regions in the, around the, uh, in the brainstem, around the aqueduct. And that explains largely the pathology and pathogenesis. Um, there are a lot of uh, unknowns here, but it is a much more logical, understandable, and evidence-based sequence than we know perhaps in, in MS. So moving on to the, the treatment and, and management of, of these disorders, your review helpfully breaks this down into to treating acute exacerbations and then preventing relapses. So could you talk us through how clinicians should be thinking about treatment at each of those stages? So let's take the typical case of a patient who presents with a new onset transverse myelitis to a hospital. Say a 40-year-old woman comes in with first episode of myelitis. A scan is done which shows a long lesion. The patient, as in any inflammatory uh, demyelinating disorder that causes a significant deficit, the patient is started on steroids. Uh, usually we would give in NMO at least five days of uh, intravenous one gram of methylprednisolone. Then we would continue the oral uh, prednisolone, about one milligram per kilogram, for many weeks. I guess the in most centers across the world who are aware of this condition, the NMO antibody uh, test would be sent off, and it might take some time for the antibody to come back. We generally do not reduce the oral steroids till we have a result back that it is negative. If it is negative, then it probably is probably a viral myelitis and other non-relapsing cause. But the antibody is positive. We want to continue the steroids to allow reduce the inflammation, allow uh, recovery. We then maintain these patients on long-term steroids, usually uh, on a tapering dose, and by around uh, six months' time, the steroid dose is significantly low. It's possible to wean these off as well. But then steroids have significant side effects. So we want to introduce a steroid-sparing agent, which conventionally has been a thiopurine all over the world because it's a familiar and easy drug to use. The aim is to build it up to an effective dose, um, and usually it's about 2 to 3 milligrams per kilogram. There are equivalents. You could try methotrexate. You could try microphenolate. Once uh, that is achieved, uh, we would try to taper the steroids off. So generally speaking, about uh, you know six months' time, patients will be either fully off prednisolone or around 10 milligrams or uh, alternate days, 3 milligrams alternate days of steroids and a full dose of acetyoprin. Uh, and it does keep relapses at bay. All the drugs that we use in NMO for relapse prevention seem to significantly by about tenfold reduction in relapses. The drugs are all effective in various doses. Now, if patients at the beginning have a very severe relapse and steroids are not making an impact, there should be no hesitation in starting plasma exchange, which can be very effective even after many weeks, sometimes many months. However, there are patients who on the immune suppression we discussed before who uh, may relapse, and we have to think about using additional drugs. Rituximab uh, has been tried in many, many patients across the world and seems to be an effective drug. There are other options, mitoxantron and so on, serial, plasma exchanges, IVIG, a variety of drugs have been conventionally used. This obviously is the strategy we follow um, in UK, but 
there and many places where costs are an issue, this perhaps is a reasonable line to follow. But uh, where that is not an issue, um, rituximab has been used as a first-line drug and, and is effective. Unfortunately, we do not have head-to-head -head comparative trials for any of these drugs. Uh, so we are in a bit of a limbo as to what is the, the most ideal first choice and really cost, uh, convenience, familiarity, all those are dis decide our practice at present. Uh, a large proportion of patients will remain relapse-free if we can achieve a, a remission, at, and that depends on the right doses, uh, on a good dose, and the maintenance steroids. Great. And, and all the, that information on, on treatment and the various drugs is very clearly laid out in your, um, your review. And um, aside from, um, uh, from drugs, are there any other management strategies that can be used with these patients? Yes. We, in NMO, we manage the acute attack with steroids plasma exchange. We try to prevent further attacks by immunosuppression. But patients are often left behind with a significant disability, and that needs two issues, symptom management and rehabilitation. Amongst the symptoms, the uh, tonic spasms uh, are rather abrupt onset, episodic, paroxysmal, short-lasting spasms involving the, uh, the arm or the leg, which can be sustained and very painful. And they usually respond very well to small doses of uh, carbamazepine. 100 to 200 milligrams twice. They can be weaned off after a few months if the spasms subside. Pain is often a very troublesome symptom, more recently being appreciated, and um, the usual pain management strategies, including drugs like gabapentin, pyrigabalin, amitriptyline, and often referral to pain clinic. Bladder bowel issues have to be managed. Mood has to be managed. Steroid-related weight gain is an issue, so we need to get a dietitian involved. Patients are often uh, markedly depressed, uh, and there's a fear of you know, impending death and so on. So we need a, a counseling, psychologist, visual assessment, getting them back into work. We have to think about long-term disability because uh, patients are often left paraplegic after the first episode and you know, uh, life comes to a standstill. Uh, so we need to think of rehabilitation strategies. And uh, I think worldwide there is a move to have NMO clinics because the needs of these patients are different from that of the typical MS patient. And does all of this treatment and management advice uh, equally apply to the NMO spectrum disorders or is there specific advice there? Um, it is a, it is slightly controversial, but there are two principles here. Um, one is that if you have the antibody, because the antibody is so specific for the condition, and because you know of the relapsing nature of the condition, even if you have only one episode and the antibody, you are likely to get another episode in the future. So, and that episode could be quite significant. Uh, it could potentially leave you paralyzed. Uh, the data we have seem to support that so far. And therefore, it might make sense to treat patients uh, or at least offer them the treatment. I think things might change with our increasing diagnosis, finding the milder forms of it over time. But as of now, we offer the uh, treatment to patients, discuss with them the pros and cons. These, particularly, these are lifelong treatments. And if they say, no, I, I, I don't want to go on this treatment, I, I'm going to have a family, I'm, I'm a young person, I don't want medications, and we tell them, look, there's a chance of relapse, these are the symptoms of an early relapse. If you think you're getting a relapse, get in touch with us. We'll uh, give you steroids. We'll admit you, give you plasma exchange so that you don't lose much if an episode is to happen again.
And another important clinical symptom is uh, nausea and vomiting because of brain stem involvement. So if an NMO patient, non-NMO patient uh, gets an unexplained and refractory nausea and vomiting, that could be a marker for, for a new brainstem episode. Okay. So that should be a red flag then, really? It is, yes. Well, that's, um, that's plenty of useful advice. That's a really nice summary. Is, is there anything else, any final headline messages that you think neurologists should take away or be aware of? NMO should be on every neurologist's mind when he sees an optic neuritis, a myelitis, or an unusual CNS syndrome. Because the diagnosis will change the management entirely. Um, from what we would do uh, in in MS. In fact, we know that many of the MS drugs make NMO worse. Well, thank you very much for that advice. So uh, thank you very much for having me, Harriet. I must say this review article is an international effort. And as you will see from the Mayo Clinic, Andrew McKeon, Ichiro Nakashima, Douglas uh, Seto, and Dr. Fujihara from Sendai in Japan, my colleague Leanne Elson from Liverpool, and uh, Professor Jerome Sese from uh, Strasbourg in uh, France. Thank you very much for having this opportunity and for letting me talk about a subject close to my heart. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.